As we stand, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do wonder at your wide open heart to us that we can confess as we just have in song our incredible worth in your sight as creatures made in your image and yet our unworthiness because of our stubborn hearted sin. We thank you, Father, for the price you've paid for us. We long to be those who, not just in lip but in life, rejoice in our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. We long to be those who have him fixed in our heart as our greatest treasure. We long to be those who trust you above all else. And so we pray, Father, as you speak your word to us, change us, we pray, for your glory's sake and for our good. Amen. Please uh, grab a seat. And hopefully uh, inside your service sheet is a, uh, an outline of uh, where we're going. This is our second last look at uh, Malachi for the year. Next week uh, where we have our uh, Christmas brunch out the back, uh, there'll be an abbreviated look at chapter 4, but this is uh, uh, chapter 3 verses 6 to 12 is our focus today, page 9 to 9. Uh, in the church Bibles and that outline hopefully will help us as we uh, steer our way through that passage. Now recently uh, just out the front here of uh, the church building we experienced a little bit of vandalism, uh, not too grand to be honest but a little bit. Uh, it happened uh, late on a Saturday night, early Sunday morning. Uh, incidentally it happened the, the same night as uh, the women's Christmas event. I'm not joining any dots uh, there, it's just, just a coincidence. Um, and their crowning achievement uh, was uh, there's a light that shines on the sign uh, out here in the corner. Their crowning achievement was to kick that over so it didn't uh, shine anymore. Uh, thankfully, uh, due to the skill of uh, someone in this congregation, it's been uh, electrical taped up and it still shines, which is wonderful. Uh, while we await uh, the insurance company to take the months it will take for them to uh, think about it. Uh, but it did get me thinking, uh, this, this little bit of vandalism... Uh, it, is a, it was a bit of a, a, a bummer, to be honest, to uh, just before Christmas uh, lose the ability to shine a light on the sign to uh, invite people to come and join us. And it did get me thinking, uh, what would we want people to see here at St Andrews if uh, a light, if you like, metaphorically were shining on this church family and people could see us, uh, what would we want them to see if the light was on? Uh, what would we hope to be, have on display Perhaps true theology or punchy programs or glamorous graphics or magnificent music or fabulous facilities. You can see I got a bit sidetracked in uh, preparation this week. Uh, what, if, what if it were, instead of those things, what, what if it was this? Now that the light is taped up and the light shines again on this place, what if the light illuminated this as people looked in? are people whose hearts were growing more and more secure in God's love for them and felt more and more free to love one another and those around us likewise. Are people who uh, actually were growing more humble over time before this God who was their father and their king. Are people who when they gathered together made much of him in their gatherings and when they went from this place went out again to make much of him in the details of their lives. And what if when the light shone on this church family, 
what was revealed were hearts that were so delighting and fixed on God's very great mercy for us that over time we offered more and more of our life, soul, all as a living sacrifice, as an act of worship to this God that our hearts are fixed on. What if the light showed that? And I ask that theoretically, but uh, that has actually always been God's goal for his people. I wonder if you've noticed that as we've gone through Malachi, the thing that God has determined to see from his people is that his name is on it, uh, that he has made much of amongst his people. If you've got it open there, have a look uh, back at chapter 1, verse 14. My name is to be honoured, not just amongst God's people, it says there, amongst the nations. I want, I want to put my name on display. That's what my people are about. So that others will know of his love, how others will know of his very great mercy. That's what he wants people to see as the light is shone on his people. But what we've seen in Malachi is that over time for God's people in Malachi's time, that light has dimmed. Uh, Yes, they're back in the promised land. You may remember as we've gone through it. But Judah, the promised land, is no more than now a postage stamp of a state. And the rebuilt temple, if you like, the centrepiece of God's people gathering with their God is, well, a poor replacement of the original. And the economy, like those around them, has tanked completely. And there is sadness and there is corruption and there is oppression. That's what the light shows. The light is dimmed and worse, what can be seen often is best left hidden. Are people who in the midst of that have grown indifferent to God's glory. Are people who keep forgetting that God is their father. Keep ignoring his love. Remember chapter 1, I have loved you, he had to say again. Are people who forget that God reigns and he is the Lord Almighty over all the details of their lives and yet their response is casual. And so, if you've got the passage open there, 3 verse 7, here's what God sees as he looks at the people, and not just them, but those who've come before them. Uh, Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and you've not kept them. There's this complete indifference to God and his ways. Rather than be God's distinct people uh, for the nations around them, rather than be like, if you like, a, a light on a hill, They're like a mirror to the nations around them, reflecting the values and the loves and the choices of the nations. And I think as we've seen this, I hope you've felt this, I definitely have, this challenges us as God's people, who are again called to be that light on a hill, the city on a hill, as Jesus says, how easily we too can be distracted. How easily our view of God's glory in the midst of all that we have going on in life just grows dim. How easily our lives are impacted by his decrees in only the slightest way. How easily we too can slip from being a light and become a mirror to the values and the loves of the culture around us. And I think the question that's been hanging in the air throughout this book as we see again and again this half-hearted indifference towards God and his purposes amongst his people, the, the question that keeps coming up is what, what hope is there for people who don't seem to be able to change? I mean, why doesn't God just give up on them? You look at 3 verse 7, he's, he's had to say, generation after generation, I'm dealing with the same stuff. Why doesn't he just give up on people who are too stubborn to change? 
Well, you see God's answer? And it's verse 6. How does God deal with a people who are too stubborn to change? Well, he doesn't change. That's how he deals with them. You see what he says in verse 6? I, the Lord, do not change. And so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. I love this. Uh, God looks at their stubborn hearts and he just opens up his heart wide to them. He reminds them that he is the Lord of covenant promises to his people. The, the promises that we saw back in chapter 1 of grace towards them, unconditional, sovereign, free love. As we stubbornly refuse to change, God's response is, well, not to change. It is as he reveals himself in Exodus 34, uh, while the people are down the bottom of Mount Sinai, bowing down to a golden calf, uh, here is what he reveals of himself in response. I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. I, the Lord, do not change. And I want to say how precious is that unchanging nature of our God here in a world where our circumstances that we face seem in a constant flux of change. Here is one who is going to be towards us the same yesterday, today and forever. And I think that makes two powerful differences to us as God's people, two powerful differences to us as stubborn, unchanging sinners. Now here's the first difference it makes. It means for stubborn, stuck sinners like us, well verse 7, we will not be destroyed, even if we deserve it. God will not give up on us no matter how stuck we become. And we have every reason because of this, even in our stubborn, stuck sin, to run to him for help rather than away from him in fear because we can trust that he won't change. And that's incredibly hard, isn't it? But that's the picture for us as we uh, feel that in ourselves, that uh, inability to change. Here is a God whose arms are wide open. Well, here's the second difference it makes. Uh, it means that stubborn, stuck sinners like us can change. Uh, one of my favourite uh, parts of the New Testament, Titus 2, uh, declares uh, wonderfully to us, it says the most powerful agent of change in this world is God's grace. God's grace alone can teach us to say no to ungodliness when we don't have the power and strength ourselves. God's grace alone can teach us to uh, incline our hearts and lives to live in ways that please him. As he speaks that grace to us, as he remains unchanging in that grace to us, as we respond to that with repentance and faith, uh, submitting more and more parts of our lives to him, he's changing us. Now, one of the most encouraging things I think I learned as a new Christian in my teenage years was not to see that that change is going to happen in an instant but to actually realise that change happens over time, that God is patient with us and to be able to actually to look back and see change. Even if it is sporadic, even if at times it feels like one step forward, two steps back, God is unchanging in his commitment to change us. And the call to change in Malachi 3, I think, is couched in the most brilliant word that emphasises that the change the Lord is interested in is not so much robotic change for its own sake, but relational change. Again, do you see it there in verse 7? This is how he describes change. Return to me 
and I will return to you, says the Lord. You see how God describes change? Change equals returning, coming home. Uh, Returning first to right relationship with God. That's what he's committed to. Uh, And there is nothing better, isn't there, than, than restoring health to a relationship. His grace enables us to do that over time as we, as we grow to trust him more because we see that he is the same. His forgiveness for our past uh, means that we can grow more secure in our relationship with him because we know he's forgiven. His plans for our future, even if we don't know what they are, means that we can grow more obedient because we can trust that he won't change. Returning to right relationship, but, but more than that, also returning to right purpose. One of the things that we've seen throughout this book of Malachi is that the reason that God has saved us as his people is to glorify him in all our lives. And so he is committed to reshaping the details of our lives, so we do that. But, and I'm sure you know this in your own experience, change is hard because we are stubborn. It is as uh, in the words of the poet W.H. Auden, he says, we would rather be ruined than changed. God's response, uh, return to me. You see how God's people respond to that call again in verse 7? But you ask, how shall we return? Or more literally what they're asking here is, why do we have to return? What's wrong with how we are? What's the big deal with changing? Why can't I just be as I am? Well, Malachi, this whole book has been the Lord's answer. It, it, It matters because of the health of our relationship with the Lord and it matters because he's interested in the details of our lives. And so to illustrate why why it matters, what the Lord has done all the way through this book is he's highlighted different change projects, if you like, areas that he's committed to see us change in. And here near the end of the book, he picks one more, one that I think that shows how easily we can become a mirror to the culture around us rather than a light. And what he zeroes in on is our use of money. Uh, God calls for heart change when it comes to our attitude to our material resources. You see it there on the outline, uh, we're, we're at verse 8 now, and the way he does that is quite stark. He says, this is a matter and a question of theft. You know, often uh, I think while giving financially to God and uh, the things of God, it can feel like God robbing us. <laughs> if we're honest, but the opposite is true. You see there, verse 8, will a man rob God? And yet you rob me. The Lord lays this uh, quite stark charge before the people, the theft of what is God's. And once again, uh, uh, the people who have done this all the way through this book uh, raise an objection. How do we rob you? And so God gets very specific. Uh, You are stealing when it comes to your tithes and your offerings. Now tithes or tenths uh, as they're called uh, was a decree, a command that God gave his people in the Old Testament to give 10% of their possessions back to the Lord. Now the the important thing to know about that is uh, God makes very clear throughout the Old Testament he is utterly self-sufficient. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. So he didn't decree that for his own benefit. The tithe was for those who served at the temple. 
And in addition to that, the tithe that was gathered uh, from the people, every three years the tithe was used to hold a community feast for all of God's people and uh, at the time of the tithe offerings and the needy, those who were unable to give, were invited to the feast and they were part of it. And the tithe was a percentage, it wasn't a flat figure, God uh, was fair. He said those who have more can give more, those who have less should give less, but all gave. It's like the picture we had in 1 Chronicles 29, the, the second reading that, that Karen read for us. There's this picture of everyone was involved. Why is God calling not giving this tithe theft? That, that does seem a bit over the top, doesn't it? It's not something that I feel comfortable saying, to be honest. Well, the reason the Bible gives is actually very simple, but crucial, I think, to a healthy understanding of our money and our material possessions. Again and again in the Scriptures, we saw this in 1 Chronicles 29, all of what we have, not, not a tenth of it, all of it belongs to God. All of it came from him. And he has said, the very first portion of it belongs to me, says the Lord. You see, God is interested in our attitude and our use of money because he wants us to trust him in this detail of our lives. He has provided this and he wants to see what we do with it. What's clear here is that it's driving it, I think, a really important thing for us to grasp, that we are not Christian churchgoers. We are Christian everything. All the details of our lives are meant to reflect that we trust our Heavenly Father from whom all good gifts come from. They're meant to reflect that we want to live for His glory in all those details. And so the simple question is this. Does your use of money reflect that? Or can God legitimately say to us, will a man rob God and yet you rob me? Now it's crucial to say, and perhaps some who know their Bibles well will be thinking this right now, that uh, the New Testament very deliberately does not carry this decree and this command of tithing on, uh, which we can breathe a sigh of relief. In fact, if you look through the New Testament, it's very deliberately reticent to nail down a figure that the people of God should give to the work of the Lord. Uh, which does beg the question, why? Uh, let me answer that in two ways. The first is an attempt to myth-bust and the second is an attempt to raise the bar. Here's the myth-busting. These are reasons that perhaps we might have in our mind why God would no longer command that of us, but they're, they're not true. Uh, the first might be this. It's not because Jesus has abolished the tithe. Uh, because offerings aren't needed anymore. In fact, when the New Testament speaks of offerings, of what God expects us to offer before him and for his cause, the stakes are raised well beyond the tithe. Uh, second thing, it's not because. It's not because the, the idea of proportionate giving is a sort of a, a, an archaic idea that we should leave behind. No, well, the New Testament carries that on. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, that says we should give as we are able. And it's not because we have no need of the temple or the sacrificial system, that's true, but the needs now for the purposes of God are greater still given the urgency, given the imminence of Jesus' return. So if it's not those things, why is it that the New Testament doesn't carry it on? Here's three reasons for you. It is because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ emphasises willingness over obligation, freedom over restriction. 
It's because all, not some of our money earning labours, have been gifted by the Lord for us to give beyond ourselves. That's why. I reckon the picture the New Testament gives of our giving is almost like the picture that I suspect many of us will experience in the coming weeks of a big Christmas dinner, a big Christmas dinner feast with family and friends and there you are gathered around the table and there's so much provision there and there's these big plates and you know what you're meant to do with the plates as it gets past you, you put a little bit on your plate and you're meant to pass it on. <coughs> How odd it would be as the giant plate of whatever it is, ham, is passed to you and you just simply place the whole thing on your plate. That's the picture here. The Bible calls for free and generous giving from the heart. But what happens when rather than doing that, our heart actually grips tightly to what God has given us? What happens? Well, uh, Proverbs 11.24 says this, and I think it uh, paints a perfect picture. The one who withholds what he should give only suffers want. You see how it works? The one who thinks that blessing can be found by clinging tightly to to what God has given me uh, actually misses out on the very thing they're trying to hang on to. In the Old Testament covenant, that was uh, that expressed itself in a very specific way. There were very specific uh, promises of blessing for obedience and promises of curse for disobedience, and they showed themselves in the land, as the people of Malachi are experiencing. Now, as we apply that there, as you see there in verse 9, that promise, as we apply it to ourselves, there's a really key difference that we have to grasp. The wonderful thing about the gospel of the Lord Jesus, if you read a a passage like Galatians 3, it says to us that all the curse that should come on us because of our stubborn disobedience was taken on him on that tree. And as we come to him by faith, we don't experience any curse that is due to us. We, rather, we come under his blessing. However, the principle I think outlined in Proverbs 11.24 remains true for us. The one who withholds only suffers want. Life gets smaller, not bigger. Uh, money becomes for us like, like a blanket on a cold winter's night that's never quite stretches far enough and we think the way we can solve it is, well, grasping it tighter. Now, why would we be that way with money? Why remain unchanged in our use of money? It could be all sorts of things. It could be other loves. And in this we become like a mirror rather than a light to our culture. Or it could be that we're afraid to give. It might be that we're afraid that we will not have enough. Or it might be that we're afraid of missing out, uh, the whole experience of FOMO. And I think our bank account will tell us whether that's our fear. How does God respond to this? Well, have a look. I love this, verse 10. What a brilliant verse. How, How would you respond to stubborn, stuck sinners when it comes to money? Well, here's God's response. Bring the whole tithe, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. Say that to the Lord Almighty, uh, uh, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour such blessing out that you will not even have room for it. God's response to our small-heartedness is to open his massive heart. The promise is here. Test me in this, says God. 
See if I don't prove faithful. See if I don't come through for you if you trust me in this. I wonder if you've seen what that looks like. It's like the picture we had in 1 Chronicles 29 where, where David is rejoicing that all of the people have trusted God in this. They've tested him in this. It's like that picture of the Christmas feast uh, as the bowl, the plates are passed around because we're not worried that there's not going to be enough. There's more in the kitchen anyway. I love this. Such a brilliant response from God. And I want to say on a personal level, this is so helpful for Liz and I as we alongside you work out what it looks like to test the Lord in this. Now, I'm not going to tell you how much we give to uh, the work at St Andrews here, not from the pulpit anyway. But this is the principle that we, along with you, are trying to apply. Uh, I get paid uh, on the 15th of every month, and happy day, it is the 15th today. (laughs) And the first thing that happens in my bank account, or our bank account, um, is a portion of money that came from St Andrews, now goes back to the St Andrews bank account, which in a way is a pretty circular operation, isn't it? But I don't regret it. And as we have had opportunity to review the amount that goes in that direction over the years and sometimes increased it, again, I've not regretted that. It does feel like, when that happens, passing the bowl down the Christmas table. And one of my favourite things to do is to see what the Lord is doing with that and delight in what he's doing. And I don't know whether you do this. This is maybe just my weird uh, approach to it. I spend it about ten times over. I think of all the things that could possibly be useful, which it can't be used for all of those things. It's just not that much money. But it's exciting to think of what God is doing with it. Now, I don't tell you this... uh, to boast in any way, but I want to tell you this, to say that we're with you in this. This is not me preaching on this, saying you should do this. My invitation to you as a church family who do give generously is to keep going, to test the Lord in this and to look for new opportunities. This, I think, this passage is not a call to trudge out of church downcast and depressed. Oh, here's another thing God wants me to do. No, verse 10, God is saying, let your eyes open wider. Uh, Let your imagination stretch. Look at the possibilities. Open your heart to the possibilities. Test me, says the Lord. See if I don't open the floodgates. See if I don't pour out so much blessing. Now, I reckon that looks like the prosperity gospel, doesn't it? It sounds like what's on offer here is that God's offering some sort of quid pro quo. The more I give, the more I get. I like that plan. No. Literally the word so much blessing here means no need blessing. Having all you need blessing. It's it's actually the same idea that we saw right at the start of the year. Remember it in 2 Corinthians 9? And so as we finish, let's finish the year where we began. Let let me go back to 2 Corinthians 9. I'll read uh, verses from there and see, you'll see the same idea. Uh, God in 2 Corinthians 9 says this. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should give what they have decided to give in their heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that at all times, in all things, and here it is, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. See how God's system works? 
Give generously, he says, because you're going to reap whatever you sow. Give cheerfully because I love it when you do it. Give expectantly because it's going to bless others. Give so that you can give again and bless more because that's what God wants you to abound in. And God's promises here in 2 Corinthians 9, 8 is the same as we see here in Malachi 3, verse 10. He, as we test him in this, he will have, cause his grace to abound so that in all times, in all things, we have all that we need to abound in these works. And I want to say to you as a church, as you do give in this way, to keep trusting him. Now, I'm aware of the time. I was going to give you a bunch of examples of how we do that, but I'll just put, skip over those and I want to finish with this. Let's go back to that picture of a light on a hill. And as we close, we come back to that picture, the light shining on this place. And what would we want people to see? Well, God's answer is this. He wants us them to see a community expressing genuine and generous trust in him. Do you see how the passage ends, 3 verse 12? God's goal in asking them to to bring forward the tithe was this, that the nations were meant to look at them doing this, looking at God's people and say, what a God they must have. The nations were meant to long to be in on the blessing of this God and the blessing of God's people, and so they, like Israel, would return to the Lord. Let me encourage you, test him in this and see if he does not prove faithful. Now we're going to, uh, in a moment, uh, pray a prayer together. Pete's going to lead us in that. I do invite you just for a moment to, with, if you've got it open there, to reflect on this passage and let God speak into your own heart and your own actions on this. And then we will pray together and then we will finish by fixing our heart again on our God with, Be Thou My Vision.